This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Kimmy Eisel, author of The Lightest Object in the Universe. When I was a kid, I just thought that like people who stayed home, people who didn't travel, like people who lived in the same neighborhood their whole life were provincial, whereas like people who traveled the world knew everything. And I just feel like the more I grow up and grow older, I just I feel like in the end of the day, we probably learn the same thing. We'll hear more from Kimmy Eisel in a few minutes. I want to invite you to be part of the First Draft community by becoming a member at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. For your contribution of $6 or more a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. It takes a lot of energy and love to put this show together every week, not to mention equipment, time, and electricity. Your donation helps keep this show going. I am committed to bringing you in-depth conversations with today's best writers of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essays. If First Draft is a part of your life, please contribute to keep the dialogue going. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of... First draft, reminder, membership matters. I can't tell you how giddy I get when a new donor joins the community. It reignites my resolve to keep reading a book a week and pursuing meaningful conversations with the authors. So thank you so much. And now I have a website. You can find more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com. There's a link there to donate, an opportunity to sign up for a newsletter, and the entire archive of more than 200 First Draft shows. So come visit and listen. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Kimmy Eisel, multidisciplinary artist and author of The Lightest Object in the Universe. Eisel has a master's degree in geography from the University of Arizona. Her debut novel, The Lightest Object in the Universe, opens on an America that has lost its power grid, its banking system, and virtually all means of transportation. It appears to be the end of times, and for some it may be, but for her characters it is an opportunity to forge a new way to survive, primarily by sharing and building community and relying on one another's skills and talents as opposed to resorting to violence and territorialism. The main characters, Carson on the East Coast and Beatrix on the West Coast, are newly in love and seeking to reunite in a world without cell phones, landlines, airplanes, or trains. Carson is undaunted and heads out from New York on foot and will not stop until he finds Beatrix. All the while, there is a mysterious community being formed in the middle of the country called The Center whose leader is using the radio to call people to join his movement with promises of food and shelter and an abundance of comfort in a world where seemingly none exists. We began the discussion with Kimmy Eisel talking about her attraction to geography. I think I've just always been really drawn to the way that we are shaped by place and that the way 
we shaped places. I lived in the same town, you know, for 22 years in, in central Pennsylvania, what my dad taught at Penn State University, you know, but I, I traveled a lot. And now I've lived in Tucson for about that long, or yeah, about the same time. And I really liked sort of the, the idea of like the, tra- the traveler um, coming to learn and understand new places. And I also felt like, you know, I t- had taken some classes in geography uh, in college, and I, I really saw that it, it was a way of looking at the world that kind of like helps everything to fall in place. <laughs> no pun intended. Like when we think about the world in terms of place and space and how we shape it and it shapes us, it felt like, you know, I mean, there's a saying in geography that it's like the hub of all disciplines because, you know, everything arises from somewhere. So I think that I was just really interested in the questions that geographers were asking, you know, particularly around conservation and development. You know, I'd spent some time in Latin America. So those issues were on my mind when I went then to pursue a graduate degree. You know, like what is our responsibility in the world, you know, and how does geography play into that? You know, I really like maps and I really like descriptions of place. I I really like thinking about like psychogeography and how places kind of work on our psyches. So the lightest object in the universe begins with kind of a catastrophic end to society as we know it in America. The banks have collapsed. There's no electricity. The grid is down. So you can't use your phone. You can't charge anything. And You know, everything has come to a stop, cars, gasoline, train travel, all the things that we rely on. How did you alight on this thought? I mean, it makes sense as you're talking about your geography background, but what was the sort of inspiration for you? And since you started this book so long ago, what kinds of things were you thinking about? I was thinking a lot about oil, really, uh, when I started uh, and sort of the luxury that you know, at that time that cheap oil afforded. So, you know, and then I was thinking about like this idea of the superpower and that, you know, if you grow up in the United States in a certain place with a certain kind of privilege, you are born of this superpower. You you gain access to things because of that stature in the world. And I had seen that, you know, in my travels, particularly in Latin America. And so I also was really unsettled by that juxtaposition of like uh, seeing the way that the superpower you know acquired its power and but also knowing that I had benefited from that so I mean you know that's that feels like a common 21st century you know for people of awareness that's a common 21st century conundrum but we were you know we were at war with Iraq it was the mid-2000s and we were we were at war and the, the fact that we were at war for oil was sometimes said and sometimes not said so I just sort of tried to, you know, I was mad and I just thought, well, what if we just got stripped of our power, both both our, you know, purchasing power and our electricity? And, you know, what if we just weren't at the top anymore of the global food chain? <laughs> so I think I just wanted to level things. And I had been writing about this kind of personal conundrum and angst and uh, discomfort and for a while in nonfiction and I just, I wasn't really getting anywhere and I wasn't enjoying it. And I just thought I would let some fictional characters grapple with these questions. So how did you go from that to finding the structure of your book? 
there are two main characters, Beatrix and Carson, and they had met when this the world was sort of still in place as we know it today. Carson was the principal of a school and Beatrix was an was an activist and did a lot of work actually in Central America fighting for fair wages. She she worked in fair trade. So they met and fell in love but were on opposite sides of the country and when this all happened they wanted to find each other again. And then there's one other perspective which is Rosie who is a 15-year-old girl who lives in Beatrix's neighborhood in California who lives with just her grandmother. So the world kind of breaks down, and we see these as the main characters. We had a family friend in New York City who was recently widowed when I around the time I started writing the book, and and these were like my, you know, these this was a couple that I'd known, you know, they'd known me since I was a baby, and they were sort of my intellectual role models. He was a writer, and she'd been an artist, and she died, and he was part of this phone network um, for bereaved spouses. And so he, you know, we went to visit one time and he had to excuse himself from dinner because he had this, you know, phone date and it wasn't a romance, but it was, you know, this long distance communication with someone who had also lost a spouse. And at one point, Beatrix was also, um, she had also lost a partner that changed in subsequent drafts. But I really thought about that. What personal loss would mean against you know, catastrophic collective loss. And I just also, like, I knew at that point we were also building more and more each day, like our interconnectivity across the distance. There was internet dating and there was Facebook and texting and, you know, like what would happen if we were cut off? And so, I, you know, I imagined this romance that would be severely interrupted by such a collapse. And then I just will also mention, because it, it, it feels like it was really an inspiration of, there was this issue of Adbusters magazine that came in the mail a, a year or so earlier. And it was, and that, you know, Adbusters is kind of like this anti-corporate, it's, it's still around, it's kind of culture jamming, anti-corporate magazine. And it, and it was some years already after 9-11, but they were imagining like another collapse, like another major catastrophe and it was kind of a similar idea of like capitalism dies and you know and it it was printed on like cheap newsprint and it was kind of like oh we're we're up and running after the thing has gone down and in the pages were just these stories from readers about how you might survive such a thing and there were two things in particular that caught my eye and one was a map like a hand-drawn map of the railroad you know with sort of this directive like go west it's the safest way to travel by the, by the railroads. The trains aren't operating, you know, and then there was a letter like from, you know, one lover to his, his or her other, you know, long distance counterpart. And so I really, those two things struck me and sort of helped me like helped springboard the story of like, okay, there are two lovers and they're separated and, you know, one's going to traverse, you know, traverse the country by walking the rail. The tone of the novel was very positive in the midst of of something that seems devastating. You know, everyone had a choice once everything they relied on went down is they could sort of pool their resources and maybe as a neighborhood grow food or whoever has a car with veggie oil, give rides to other people. Or if you have a skill, maybe you can trade it for this skill and we'll help each other. Can you talk a little bit about your world building and how you wanted to create the rules of this world and maybe talk about some of them that that spoke to that? For example, what I'm thinking about is 
a bicycle brigade or how they got mail, things like that? Yeah, a lot of that comes directly from observing and being a participant in neighborhoods where I live in Tucson and and also being a part of a, you know, very collaborative artist community and that, you know, Tucson's a poor city. Um, in many ways, you know, we don't get national attention, you know, the ways that, you know, people in LA and New York do in terms of like the artist scene. And we've just, we scrambled for resources, but there, that what that has done is like created this, you know, a sense of camaraderie and collectivism in a way. It's like, oh, you need, you need lights for the show here. You can use these lights or you can rent them for a hundred dollars or, you know, oh, you can use the studio space. And, you know, so, the, so I witnessed that and was part of that. And then, you know, in my neighborhood, the various neighborhoods that I've lived in, I, I also saw that kind of community, uh, community building and people, you know, having pizza in their adobe ovens, you know, and having potlucks. And there was one time this bicycle brigade that came to town. I don't know if they're still around. I think they were actually called the superheroes. I think they were from the Midwest and they like rolled into the neighborhood and like, they wore capes and they showed up at my next door neighbor's house and they spent the weekend and built a compost toilet for him, you know? So it was like, I was witnessing all this like in real time. And so, you know, it was just, and people like some people were starting to put solar panels up and people were raising chickens as they had in that neighborhood, you know, for generations. So I was seeing all that and it just seemed like, okay, well, I could take that reality and place it into this more frightful scenario. So that was really the inspiration of that. And I could, I could just see that and feel it. And it seemed like something that worked. What it came down to, too, was like, we're just like, things aren't really over. We're just back to life in maybe the 1800s, where we could do a barn raising, we could gather the cows and milk them, we can grow food, we can send mail via it wasn't horseback, it was bicycle, but things like that. I guess what's so interesting is the intersection of these things that we think we can't live without. Electricity, computers, cars, email, iPhones, movies, Xboxes. All of that. So, you know, what does darkness allow? A certain kind of stillness, certainly a certain kind of quiet you know, again, it's like I have, you know, then it's like, oh, this this is fiction. And there may be some useful things in that for us now. You know, I mean, how many people do you know that are like trying to use their phone less? Well, I guess it sort of depends where you live and who you hang out with. But like, I can't tell you how many conversations I have with people who are like, oh, I'm really trying to quit Facebook, but I can't. You know, I mean, it's like these things have taken over our lives. But I mean, this isn't, I'm not saying anything new or interesting, really. But and I'm certainly not also saying like that by going back to some dark age, we're better off. I do think that maybe we have more wherewithal than we think we do when it comes to like letting go of some power, you know, like where else might power come from then? I think that's, you know, maybe that's one of the guiding questions. I don't think I've ever said it like that before. But, you know, even in The Walking Dead, like the, the zombie show that's like just has another season coming out, I had to stop watching it after season seven, I think, or six, but there's even a camaraderie that happens there. I mean, you, you got to watch your back, but like the way people survive in part is because they come together. I think what your novel is pointing to where the source of power lies besides within everybody's 
heart and soul to to make connection is nature. It's a very powerful book about the natural world because when all these other things are gone, that's what we have is a natural world. We can hunt and fish and get water from the streams. We can depend on the sun if there's if there's any sort of solar panel. When Carson sets off, he brings a tent and a water filter and he's basically on a big camping trip. That speaks to, you know, my relationship with, with nature. I mean, I, I do worry. I think in some ways that, you know, we're we're very far from that and, you know, who knows what, what we'll have what we'll have left to use and is it ours to use. I think learning how to like have a relationship with those resources that are worthy of relationships, you know, versus just seeking them as, as resources is important now and could prove to be important as the climate crisis continues to make major shifts in that world that we think we will always have. Yeah, there was a line in the book and it, it was talking about why societies fail and you wrote basically that societies fail because they're unwilling to adapt to environmental realities. I think we might be. That concept also comes from Jared Diamond. I do think that we're there. I mean, you know, I guess I take some comfort too. I mean, this is probably a strange thing to say, but in recent weeks I've I've just started thinking differently about the climate crisis and it's like, well, like nature is going to be fine in a way. You know, like if, if we if we're not here, nature will be fine, which like in some ways that's comforting, like it's going to survive. I think the challenging thing is like, how are we going to survive with it and how will we redefine that relationship? And I think, you know, like just centuries of thinking of it as something that is ours to use is not is not going to keep us here. For the people in the book who for one reason or another, couldn't rely on nature, couldn't gather with their neighbors, or were just more overtaken by fear than any sort of ability within their own selves to stay in place and create something better than what they have. They There was this call to this place called The Center. The people there had a radio, and they had radio signals all across the country basically promising if you can make it here, we will have food. It's It was kind of like the idea of the land of milk and honey where everyone's happy and there's ice cream and there's food and there's communion. And so come here. This is a place of refuge. Can you talk about the center and then maybe the, the guy leading it? Yeah, Jonathan Blue. You know, I mean, I guess there is what's going to save us. I think in many, for many people, that is like the question of faith. And, you know, depending on how you define that, like who, who will be the savior? And so, you know, this character, Jonathan Blue, really positions himself that way. You know, and he ends up being in some ways like what Beatrix needs to work against, you know, to keep people in her neighborhood and away from, you know, what she sees are false promises. So, you know, I, I, I think I just wanted to play with that idea of like, what, what will we believe in? And, you know, how much will we want to just keep a certain kind of material comfort? So, I mean, Jonathan Blue, you know, he, he is a little bit more than that. And I don't think that he's pure evil. He believes that like this idea of the center of like turning within and like 
that this darkness has invited a shift for all of humankind. So I, I think, you know, there's actually some things about him, you know, as I came to write him and as I started studying other cult leaders, you know, of course, like if you start to watch a cult leader, you can easily start to see like that some of the things they say make sense, which, which can be frightening when you're sitting there watching YouTube of cult leaders. Even with Jonathan Blue, like I, I did start to believe some of the things that he, like some of the things he says make sense to me and um you know are are aren't just bad that there's some truth to what he's saying and that maybe like some kind of spiritual consciousness can happen in a certain kind of darkness Beatrix heard Jonathan Blue she heard him on the radio calling people to come to the center her her friend Rosie this young 15 year old that she befriended and her grandmother went to the center and that was pretty heartbreaking for her to see them leave you know, I see her as probably the most changed character in the book because I saw her as someone who wanted to go, go, go and be on the run and, and stand up for what she believes in, which isn't unlike maybe some of the people going to the center, although they want they want comfort. They might be looking for something in the same way maybe she was looking for something in her protests. She has a conversation because she comes home from Mexico and her two roommates are gone and she's going to go find them in a farm in north of where she is now in California. And she starts talking to some of the neighbor, her, some of her neighbors, and they are like, stay here. You know, you have something to offer. Help us. This is what we're creating here. And she talks, she has a little speech where she talks to them a little bit about silence versus protest and what she thinks that means and, and why she she kind of ends up staying um, because I felt like maybe because a little bit of that conversation, but can you, can you talk a little bit about writing that scene and if you want to explain it more? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, she comes home and she's, she's sort of grounded, you know, she can't really get to this farm or her friends have left her this no, She can't really believe that they've left her. Um, I mean, she's been out of the country, you know, but still, she's like, why haven't they waited for me? And so it's like, it's still that residue of we got to topple the system that she has. Like, I can't just, stay here and plant flowers, you know, I got to go. And, you know, she just can't get out of that mindset. And when she has that conversation with the two members of the bicycle brigade modeled after that real life superhero group, they, they just have a different notion of like what superheroes are. To them, superheroes are people who do good deeds in their neighborhood. To her, superheroes are like people who topple the system. And so she's got a wistfulness of like, you know, the, the, street protests and glamour and sexiness of that so you know just by the questions they ask and kind of like their confoundment with with this insistence she has on leaving I think she really starts to see you know that and some of the other things that happen she just she really starts to see that she has youth and that she you know her her superpower is her ability to organize community and but shouldn't have to do it like across borders she could just do it right within a few square miles so she has all these she does have these skills that come in that come in handy that are useful for her survival and for bringing her neighbors together I mean, I think, you know, when I was a kid, I just thought that like people who stayed home, people who didn't travel, like people who lived in the same neighborhood their whole life were provincial, whereas like people who traveled the world knew everything. And I just feel like the more I grow up and grow older, I just, I feel like in the end of the day, we probably learn the same thing. Now I've done a little bit of both, stayed in one place and traveled. But I, I think that like the people who stay in one place, we probably learn the same lessons. It's just we learn them in different ways. When Beatrix decides to stay, 
She really becomes an important member of the community. One of the things she ends up implementing because she's so upset by Jonathan Blue is figuring out how they can have a radio station there, how they can broadcast out to their community and beyond, and then putting content on the radio. Yes, I love radio. You know, I, I think that, you know, I, early on, I really, I started researching low power radio and there's just so, there's so much of just radio transmission that like my brain doesn't get, but I had all these really interesting conversations with low power radio people and, you know, just like, God, could you, how do you, how does radio work without power? And it turns out it can, you know, it can work all kinds of ways. There was at one point, one conversation I had with someone about like, you could even transmit radio like along the railroad track or something. So it just felt like a very possible form of communication. And I do think that there's something about listening versus watching. You know, there's something that happens when we strip away the visual, you know, that allows us to like come together and listen a little bit differently. You know, I was thinking of, you know, FDR's like fireside chats and that way of addressing a people through radio. And so, and I, you know, I'd also, because of my time in Latin America, I knew like about like radio novellas, like stories, serials on the radio that like sometimes would contain like a public service message, anti-smoking stories, work around domestic violence, awareness campaigns, but like in the guise of a story. So for her, it just seemed an obvious way to counter Jonathan Blue and his broadcast. It's like, well, how do we, what stories can we tell right here about us and about how we're surviving? Can you tell me about the title? There's an epigraph at the beginning of the book from Bill McKibben in which he's describing an experiment he did where he recorded many hours of television and then analyzed it and finds that the message from most advertising is that you are the most important thing. You are the heaviest object in the universe. And so for a long time, the book was called that, The Heaviest Object in the Universe. And You know, it was also like at one point a 500 page draft and I handed it to a friend and I was like, oh, this is just, this just feels so heavy. What am I going to do? And she said, oh, that's easy. Just change the title. And so I was like, okay, like the lightest object in the universe. And it just like, it made perfect sense, like immediately, because what I was writing about was actually that like the antithesis of what the message that Bill McKibben found in all those hours of television. It's like, you know, if advertising wants us to believe that we're the most important thing, like, you know, in the absence of advertising, like what then becomes the most important thing? So it just felt really like it just felt really right. And I think, you know, there also there are birds in the book and the birds are they keep us looking up, you know, so like, I mean, I think it, it sort of also speaks to the sense of optimism. I mean, the birds in this novel also like portend danger too. So I think there's that, but I I think that just in terms of this like kind of optimism and lightness, I think the title helps communicate that. I I know the world has changed since you started this in the mid 2000s. It's so different now. And I'm wondering did you change from writing this and watching the world change? Did it affect you? And, and did you learn something from going through this whole process? Not necessarily about writing, but about the topics you were writing about that, that maybe changed you. When I started writing the book, I was feeling pretty crappy about 
America. I mean, you know, we were at war. I was sort of this idea of the superpower was not sitting well with me. I knew the decades of cultural and economic imperialism that the U.S. had brought to other parts of the world. So I just, I just didn't feel like patriotic in any shape or form. And then I think in some ways by like writing the collapse of this country, I also came to like appreciate it so much more, you know, kind of like what I might see as like fundamentally like our greatest strengths are, even though I think it's difficult for a country to succeed if it's built on genocide and slavery, but that I feel like tearing it down, like allowed, I mean, I think the the process of reimagining it was really powerful for me. And that, you know, almost so powerful that I think like that, like maybe it actually needs to fall. And I don't say that lightly because I know that falling means all kinds of horrible things for, for all of us. So maybe it's not like I'm calling for the collapse, but I'm, but I'm definitely calling for like a reimagining. I think that maybe we're in the midst of like that we might be in the midst of that. And so even though I'm, I despair most days, you know, I also think, okay, well maybe this is like kind of the beginning of an, of an ending that then allows for something new. So I think the process of writing it really like opened up that possibility for me. I think what also opened up that possibility for me is this other practice that I do, which is it's a form of movement improvisation where you make with you're in a room with other dancers and the musician. And I was practicing that form like the whole time I was writing this book. And it's just, it's all about like making it up as you go, like finding some coherence, letting something end. So I was experiencing with my body and with other artists, oh, we can make something and then it's over and it ends. And then we can make something else and then it happens and then it's over and it ends. So those things are short. They're like five minutes, 10 minutes, 45 minutes. But like applying that same thing to like the notion of a country, like, oh, maybe we're in this process of making something together. Some of it's really horrid some of it's really beautiful it's like continuing to unfold at some point like we will find an ending and then we'll make something else I feel like the process of doing that in dance with other bodies like help me think of the bigger things in that same way a book or a country can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer So I read Italo Calvino, Invisible Cities, probably when, I don't know, 25 years ago. And I just think this book has influenced the way I see the world and, you know, in some ways, um, the way I write. I don't know that it directly influenced the novel, but there's definitely like something about his sense of discovery in this book that I love. So this is Italo Calvino, Invisible Cities. This is um, page 77. After a seven days march through woodland, the traveler directed toward Bauchi's cannot see the city, and yet he has arrived. The slender stilts that rise from the ground at a great distance from one another and are lost above the clouds support the city. You climb them with ladders. On the ground, the inhabitants rarely show themselves, having already everything they need up there. They prefer not to come down. Nothing of the city touches the earth except those long flamingo legs on which it rests, and when the days are sunny, a pierced angular shadow that falls on the foliage. There are three hypotheses about the inhabitants of Bauchi, that they hate the earth, 
that they respect it so much they avoid all contact, that they love it as it was before they existed, and with spyglasses and telescopes aimed downward, they never tire of examining it, leaf by leaf, stone by stone, ant by ant, contemplating with fascination their own absence. Why did you choose that? You know, I mean, I guess it's just like one of my go-to favorite books and I could have picked any passage in there. I just, I really, I think, I just really love the sense of discovery. I love the kind of like the space of possibility that each of those cities and the way he writes about them allow, like that, you know, is this a real place? Is this a metaphor? There's a little bit of the magical realism in there, but I mean, it's also like so very specific I mean, and I think I picked that one just because it's it's just on my mind a lot, and it it speaks a little bit, you know, to the to the idea of of the lightest object in the universe. Um, you know that this is here's a city aloft, and it's looking down on on the world, you know, where we no longer where we no longer are. You know, just sort of the power of nature, I guess, one way that we might exist with it. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. One of the challenges I had in the book was revealing the reason for the collapse. And in many of the early drafts of the book, I just, I alluded to some of the reasons for it, but I never felt compelled to specifically outline. I mean, in part, I just wasn't really that interested in what caused the collapse. I just feel like it could be any number of things. And indeed, you know, in the writing of the book over the course of years that I wrote it, I mean, it really could have been many things, trade imbalances, cyber attack, climate crisis. My editor really pushed me to be more definitive about that because, you know, you know, we decided that it would really distract readers not to know. And, you know, I think she was right. I was, I was reluctant, but so this scene, like this scene I wrote in one of the very last drafts of the book. And it's, sort of the way that I came to how to tell the reader like what happened. And I, I mean, I do that in the prologue. I, I kind of, the prologue outlines, you know, some of the causes of this collapse pretty clearly, but we felt like there needed to be something, you know, for Carson, maybe that, you know, his, his sense of history. So this scene takes place in the city before he leaves and he's met a young letter carrier, you know, turns out to be part of the bicycle Pony Express the velocipede. And he follows this young, this teenager who could have been his student, you know, into a building, an abandoned building. And there is, the writing is on the wall, so to speak, sort of the, I'll I'll just read a short section. This is from page 41. The building smelled of moisture and chemicals and Heido's light, Heido is the, is the boy. Kaido's light spilled over the walls, revealing giant head shapes filled with cogs, machines, and digital numbers, a sky of bulbous dark gray clouds, and an army of indigenous fighters cut from an enlarged historical photograph. Geronimo and crew, Carson was pretty sure. One of the figures had been transformed with paint into an eagle, cartoonish and angry, a shredded scroll in its talons. How many times had Carson walked by, never knowing this was here, never thinking to look? Are you one of the artists, he asked. Hyrdo lit up a patch of floor where a bicycle was stenciled in pink paint, its rider in a cape scrawled with the word power. Kinda, yeah, he said. My friends did stuff here, but we didn't know a lot of the other artists. Never even saw them. We'd just come in and look for their stuff. It was so lit. There'd be something new almost every day. 
Carson's interest quickened. Like a newspaper, he said. Or a wiki. Exactly, Heido said, lighting up what looked like a bed with a paper collage of people piled on it asleep. The calm before the storm, he said. In the next room, the same paper people were sitting or standing, holding laptops and cell phones. A broad swath of gold covered some of them, creating the letters S-H-T-F, painted from floor to ceiling. As the light bounced over the walls, the images flashed like a flip book. Heido's voice began to fill the space. If you know what you're looking at, you can get the whole history. Do you want to say anything else about that? They continued to walk through the building and Heido's lighting up all of this graffiti and street art, which is painted inside the building that basically narrates in imagery the collapse. And so Heido, you know, who's wise beyond his years, kind of points out features of these artists and, oh, you know, that's her specialty. And, oh, this is about the collapse of the banks. And so, I mean, it was it was a way within the story to tell the story of the collapse. And, of course, Carson gets to marvel at, like, the wisdom of this young person, the age of one of his students, one of his former students, perhaps. And, and he also gets to kind of connect. Okay, this is like the modern Lascaux cave. This is the modern cave writing of how we tell the story of the end. Where do you write? I write mostly in my home office on a laptop. My two dogs are usually wanting to be in that space with me also. But I have to say, I've recently started writing in a notebook by hand. And this, I did this uh, this summer when I was traveling a bit. And uh, it really it really elicits something else. Like I feel like I tap into a different part of my brain when I'm writing. I mean, I've had writer friends tell me that for years, but I was like, no, I just need to type it, you know? So that's been kind of an exciting discovery to, to have more mobility and to be able to write everywhere and access something else. And that, that feels more like kind of like the raw writing, like less, less about the crafting piece, but kind of like when something is just coming out of you onto a page. It's exciting. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I've been taking a lot of pleasure in reading lately, so that's been fun. Um, I also live in the Sonoran Desert in the southwest in the the borderlands, and there's a lot going on right now here um, that's calling my attention. As an example, like two weeks ago, I just organized an action at the new border wall, like the new sections of Trump's wall. Um, which are being built in Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument, which is a protected, federally protected land, um, national monument. And, you know, I just, I, I stepped away from my work and I stepped away from my writing and I resurrected some animal masks that I'd had from a previous performance. And I just put out a call and a handful of people answered me and we went down there and we, you know, it wasn't exactly a performance because, you know, there was no audience and it's not like I had choreographed something. But we just we just did this action like next to this giant 30 foot wall. Um, we were on the Mexican side and, you know, I just I just wanted to bring attention to the fact that like that this wall will harm so many living things, people and plants and, you know, animals who will be cut off from water sources and migratory route so you know we we filmed it and I'm like working on getting it out to the world so it was not necessarily a 
pleasurable activity in some ways, although there definitely was a kind of power in actually like putting my body on the line, so to speak, and like, you know, doing something about something that troubles me so much. Um, you know, and it, like, it did feel good to use my, like I had to make a new mask of a Jaguar. I hadn't, I didn't have a Jaguar mask and it felt good to do that with my hands. And, um, you know, it just felt good to bring some people together who had the same concern. You know, we didn't, we didn't all know each other well. And, you know, so there was, there was pleasure in, in that, you know, even though it's like a, it's a sober reality, what we're dealing with here. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Most of the time I show it to my mom. She's a really great reader and she's actually a really wonderful editor. It's not her, you know, it's not something she studied or, you know, did professionally, but she just, she really picks up on both the content details and, you know, typos and, you know, the whole, the whole range. Um, I, I feel really grateful about that. I also send it to my partner. He's, he's also a really good editor. You know, I have a few, I have a few writer friends too that I, that I lean on consistently. You know, I, I do show, I do always feel like I have to show work. I don't, I know people who finish something and they just know and they send it off without showing anybody. And I, I, I tend to like, I admire that a little bit. Like I admire that kind of confidence. I feel like I always just need a, a second or third look. How have you dealt with rejection? For this novel, I queried about 30 or more agents, which, you know, I mean, I guess is like for some people, that's a lot for some people. That's not that many. Um, it felt like a lot. Uh, I, I, I tried hard for a long time to get it into the world. And I also like just needed to keep working on it. There were like 29 rejections. I just didn't want to put it in a drawer ever. So I just was pretty dogged about this novel. And I, I, I think it's a blessing and a curse to work in other art forms, you know, cause on one hand you just, you sort of make progress slowly, but I do feel like it helps me distribute my creativity, like in, in, in multiple ways, you know, if I'm stuck with writing or if it just feels like I'm not getting one, anyone's attention or, you know, I'm getting the rejection again, you know, I can sometimes use my hands and body to do something else. I mean, it is interesting though, like you think that you publish a novel and it gets some attention and that you think things are going to be different. But I mean, I'm just sending stuff out and getting rejections. And I don't know why I thought that would change, but I know anybody who writes a novel knows that it doesn't. But I mean, unless you like win the National Book Award or something, but you know, so it's just, it's, it just feels like something that I do because I have something to say. But yeah, I don't, I mean, rejection is hard. I struggle with it, but sometimes then I just go put on music and go dance and that helps. What is your favorite word? I have two answers. One, one favorite word is a word that I use a lot in my prose and it's the word shiny. And I just like the way it sounds and I like what it means. I do feel like it can work to shine up a scene in a way. Maybe that's just cheap and easy, but. I feel like I use it a lot. And then the other word is like a little bit more philosophical. And I don't know that it's a word that I actually use in my writing, but I feel like it kind of propels a lot of my work. And it's this, that, the really cool word of somnabulism, which it's like got a bunch of consonants together, M and an N and M and a B. It kind of sounds like you're like eating peanut butter when you say it, somnabulism. But I, also, I just really like the idea of um, that there's a word for sleepwalking. And I, I feel like I want my work as a writer and an artist to like wake, to wake people up. 
from their slumber. So I like that word. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Kimmy Eisel, author of The Lightest Object in the Universe. And if you like today's show, check out my interview with Emily St. John Mandel, author of Station Eleven, also a speculative work of fiction about the end of days. You can find the entire archive of interviews on my website at firstdraftwriters.com. You can also follow First Draft on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. That's short for First Draft, a dialogue on writing. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including cuts from the interviews from this month's episode that didn't make it into the final show, and writing tips from my guests. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. One of the extras you will receive from this interview with Kimmy Eisel will be what she learned about writing from improvisational movement and dance. There will be additional cuts and writing tips from other interviews running this month. So please go to www.patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And please rate the show on iTunes and invite a friend to listen. Thanks so much for tuning in. Coming up by the next few episodes are interviews with Nick Flynn, Amitav Ghosh, and Leslie Jameson. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin, your host and producer. Thank you for listening.